From the Kennan Institute in Washington, D.C., welcome to Kennan X, a podcast on our never-ending quest to understand Russia, Ukraine, and the surrounding region. I'm your host, Jill Doherty. When I think of Russia, I don't always think about nuclear weapons. I think about food, sitting down at a table, zastalom, with friends, a table covered with pirashki and pickled herring and stalichny salad, and of course, my absolute favorite, borscht. So I was ecstatic when I heard about Dara Goldstein's new book, Beyond the North Wind. It's all about Russian cooking from the far north, one of my favorite parts of Russia. So I called up Dara, and we had a delicious conversation. So, Dara Goldstein, I'm sitting in my apartment, and I've got your book in front of me, and it is simply gorgeous. Beyond the North Wind. It's large, it's filled with photographs, filled with history and anecdotes, and of course, recipes. But I just wanted to ask you about the photographs by Stefan Vettinen. I'm sorry if I'm not pronouncing it correctly. Can you tell me how that came about? Vettinen. Vettinen. (laughs) It's a Finnish name. He's a Finnish Swede, a Swede of Finnish origin. I really wanted Stefan to take the photographs in this book. He had been the photographer for my previous cookbook, Fire and Ice, Classic Nordic Cooking. He lives in Stockholm, and he was able to capture that northern landscape that I so love. When I first asked him to photograph for this book, he was hesitant because he'd never been to Russia. It seemed a bit forbidding, I think I would say. And he'd grown up in a Finnish-Swedish family. His mother had been through the terrible winter war between the Soviet Union and Finland in 1939-1940. And really the only thing he knew about the Russians was this phrase he remembered from his childhood, never trust a Russian even if he's been fried in butter. (laughs) So he wasn't sure that he wanted to go to Russia, but we went there in February. I guess it was three years ago now, north of the Arctic Circle. It was very dramatic, and he absolutely fell in love with the landscape and the people and then went back twice on his own. Mm, It's a beautiful part of Russia, isn't it? It is. I really love how crystalline everything is in the winter. It just sparkles and you see the northern lights at night when it's clear. And in the summer, you have the white nights when the sun never sets. So again, it's this almost otherworldly sense as though you've entered into another dimension. You know, I was just thinking of a Russian word, which I'm sure you know, ini. It's hoarfrost in English. That's what you get, almost like a man's whiskers, you know, like white whiskers on trees when it's really cold. I've never seen that in the States. I have in Russia. Maybe it exists in Minnesota. But yes, it's just beautiful. By the way, where are you right now? I am actually looking out on a very Russian-styled landscape. I'm in Williamstown, Massachusetts, which is in the western part of the state in the Berkshires. And we just had five inches of snow last night. 
So I'm looking out on a snowy landscape, and there's a birch tree right outside my window. So I'm channeling Russia. Oh, my goodness. How did you get interested in Russia? I know it goes way back, but just tell me your earliest memories. I really connected with my maternal grandmother, who would visit us a lot and live with us for months at a time. And she was an amazing baker. One of my earliest memories is of her taking rugelach, which is a very classic Jewish cookie, out of the oven. And just the smell of cinnamon and butter and that warmth that you get in the house from baking. Mm. And an anecdote that I relate in my book has to do with this wooden cup that I found in my parents' closet when I was around eight years old. It was woodcut and painted with scenes of onion domes, these wonderful Mm. Russian churches. And I somehow connected that to my grandmother, who had actually come from Belarus, which is not Russia proper, but it was part of the Russian Empire. And she'd had a very hard life there and come to this country around 1916. But somehow that cup represented everything that she would never tell me about her past because it was not spoken about. And then my little brother did a chemistry experiment in it, and the whole thing burned up and was pretty much destroyed except for the very bottom of it. And I felt devastated. And I was holding this shard, not exactly a shard if it's wood, I guess, but this splinter (laughs) of a Mm. cup. And suddenly I saw that there was a stamp on the bottom that said made in USSR. Wow. Oh, this whole narrative, this romantic narrative that I had created about my past was absolutely shattered along with the cup. But it made me curious about Russia, and when I started college, I started studying Russian, and then it just snowballed from there. Right, and you became a guide on the old U.S. Information Agency exhibits, right? As I understand, you did too, Jill. I did. so extraordinary. It was such a profound experience for me, and actually, it has a great connection to this book. Because the exhibition that I was on in 1978-79 was Agriculture USA. So it was inherently very, very political, even more so than, say, some of the others that had to do with design. We were showing early videos of American grocery stores and how you could get all produce year-round, trucked in from California. I mean, the kind of thing that Mm. makes us shudder now. But we were shoving this in the Russian states when they had very little in the stores. And it really made me think about agricultural systems. It made me think about plenty, about abundance and scarcity, and just how generous the Russians were with bringing a lot of food to me at the exhibit because I still remember the word they used was dystrophic. They thought I wasn't plump enough. (laughs) By their standards, I was too thin, and they wanted to feed me. And Mm -hmm. the way I somehow worked through this Cold War atmosphere and had very difficult moments there as a guide officially working for the State Department, was to write my very first cookbook, which came out in 1983, now 
called A Taste of Russia, and it was about Russian hospitality. And I think that that experience of trying to work through political hostility, through food, through the table, through this idea of sharing, is sort of a leitmotif that is present in this book as well. I think you're absolutely right. You know, I was an exchange student and a guide in Russia for a long time. And Russians, even in the worst of circumstances, always put a lot of food on the table. They're always very generous when a person comes into the house. There absolutely has to be food and drink. And that, I really think, is a beautiful part of the culture. So let me ask you, what do you think makes Russian cooking unique as opposed to the cooking of other countries? I always hesitate to use the word unique because everything is unique in its own way. It Mm -hmm. reminds me of Tolstoy's famous line about happy families. (laughs) (laughs) But I think what makes it distinctive maybe is the word that I would choose. That's better. (laughs) That it has for over a thousand years relied on methods of preservation that were absolutely crucial to sustenance. Right now, fermentation is so trendy and everyone's talking about probiotics. And of course, the Russians didn't know about probiotics as such, but they knew what made them feel healthy and they knew how to keep the harvest from their very short growing season or to take fish and to cure that, to smoke it, to take cabbage and cucumbers and mushrooms and layer them with salt and do this lacto-fermentation that does give very good bacteria to us that helps keep us healthy. There is the Russian black bread that is sourdough. Mm. You have Russian Mm. kvass, which is made from the dried black bread or you can use rye flour too if you only have that in a pinch, but that's also lightly fermented. And mead, which was very much a part of older Russian practice, is also fermented. It's a wine made from honey. So I think that this idea of the sour in a very positive sense suffuses Russian cuisine. When we say sour in English, I think it's kind of a negative word. I think of sourpuss. (laughs) I think of a sour expression. But in Russian, sour is actually a good thing. Yes, that's very, very true. And a lot of people jar things and preserve things, put them in the basement, etc. I know you're really a food writer, but there's a lot of research in this book. So how did you go about actually writing it? I think that In a way, when people ask me how long it took me to write this book, I say 50 years (laughs) (laughs) because it accumulated knowledge, things I had been thinking about for a long time, but not necessarily in a focused way, but they came flooding back when I started writing the book. So it has a lot of personal memories from my travels to the Soviet Union and then Russia beginning in 1972. But in terms of the research, I had come across a reference to 
this ancient Greek utopia called Hyperborea, which means beyond the north wind. That's where I got the title and the specific idea for this book. So my research really stemmed from this idea of the north wind that seems so poetic. And I wanted to try to ascertain whether this place really might have existed at some time and what it looked like now and how it was tied to the way Russians cooked beginning a very, very long time ago. Yeah, I was just thinking about pancakes and the sun and the significance and the symbolism of pancakes in spring and all of that. So let's say that you're sitting there and all of a sudden you absolutely have to eat something Russian. <laughs> what are your what are your favorite things? It could be very basic, it can be very elaborate, but what are the things that absolutely drive you crazy with desire in Russian food? That's a dangerous question, Jill. <laughs> I could go on for hours. I think that if we were having our phone call at five o'clock instead of at noon, I would say mm -hmm. I'm ready for some horseradish vodka. Wow. But since it's noon now, I'm thinking more about soup. And mm. the Russians have an extraordinary repertoire of soups and feel as though dinner isn't complete without having soup before the main course. And one of my favorites is a dried mushroom and barley soup, partly because those dried mushrooms really have the aroma of the forest floor. And for Russians, going out to gather mushrooms is very much built into their DNA. It's not just some trendy little thing that they might do on a Saturday morning, but it's a cultural and emotional imperative. So. I would say that soups in various forms, I also really love Russian pies. That would be mm. probably my favorite thing. When I was writing this book, I thought I can do a whole book on Russian pies. They come in so many different sizes and shapes, and they're both savory and sweet. We tend to think of pie as something for dessert, but it's can be the centerpiece of a Russian meal. Mm, like a pirog or pirashki? Well, the pirog would be the centerpiece. The pirashki would go very well with the horseradish vodka <laughs> because those are little hand pies that are more bite-sized. One of my favorites is a scallion and hard-boiled egg pie with lots of dill and parsley. And it has uh. a beautiful, very tender rye crust so the combination, again, of that earthy flavor from the rye with wow. uh, the green onions and eggs is pretty divine. Okay, then I have to ask you just briefly, but I do have to ask you about two of my favorite things in Russian food that are actually very, very simple. So one is bread and one is honey. I am literally addicted. In fact, when I go to Russia, I take it back in my suitcase, badadinsky chleb, which is my favorite dark Russian bread. And I'm also addicted to honey, Russian honey of any type. It's dense. And if you look at the cover of the book, you can see that Baradinsky right there mm -hmm. on the cover. Mm -hmm. Black. It looks like a black crust. And you see coriander yes. seeds on the top. So mm -hmm. that's what gives it the distinctive flavor that it has. 
And it also has a very long fermentation, so you get a very nice sour flavor that penetrates the loaf, but at the same time, there's some sweetness to it. I didn't put a recipe for that bread in this book because it's very hard to capture the essential flavor of Russian black bread here in the States. The yeast Mm -hmm. that we have are different. The flour that we have is different. And while I think a lot of readers who had never tasted the original one wouldn't be disappointed, it never quite lived up to my standards. Mm-hmm. But I do have lots of recipes using honey because I'm mm-hmm. also obsessed with it. Until the late 19th century, Russians used honey almost exclusively for sweetening because sugar was very expensive. And it was only when they started producing it from sugar beets and it became available and affordable that the Russians turned to sugar But even when making preserves, they used honey. And I have a recipe in here for strawberry preserves that use honey. And it gives it a very different taste from what we're used to. Dara, there are so many questions I could ask you. But I have one which really has to do with Russian society now. Because there are two things that I see when I go to Moscow and other cities. One is, of course, you have fast food. But you also have what looks like a revival of some traditional Russian food. It's really a wonderful story. And that's part of the reason I wanted to write this book. Because my editor, it was actually her idea. She suggested it to me. And I burst out laughing. (laughs) I said, really? Another Russian cookbook? I've already written one. But I couldn't stop thinking about for precisely the reason that you're talking about. During the Soviet period, a lot of this information about traditional food preparation was lost, partly because people didn't have the resources, they didn't have access to food, they were living in constrained environments where they couldn't store a lot of foods. But quite interestingly, The Russian invasion of Crimea and subsequent annexation in 2014 meant that there were sanctions placed against Russia and they couldn't import a lot of agricultural foods from the West. And Russians had become so used to having their favorite cheeses and all sorts of other produce that suddenly was unavailable. So they turned to themselves and their own traditions. And in an odd way, the sanctions jump-started this beautiful artisanal movement in Russia that had Mm -hmm. already begun beginning in the late 1990s, but it really infused it with a kind of energy and also urgency. And now there are a lot of young people, not as many as in the States, but still it's notable who are farming, producing very, as they call them, ecological foods. So they're organic. Mm -hmm. They're very wholesome. The packaging is savvy. It's quite beautiful. And there are restaurants that are focusing on traditional Russian methods. There's one in Moscow called Ukhvat, which is the peel that you use to remove bread from the oven. And it is using the cooking methods 
of the old Russian masonry stove. And mm. that's the kind of food that they're serving. So it is actually a very exciting time in Russia for those of us who are interested in food. That is wonderful. I can't thank you enough for talking about this, Dara. It's just a beautiful book. And right now, I am opening up one of the pages here, and you have the names of those dishes in Russian, actual Russian letters, like Pirashki and, let's see, Vigetarianskia Halopsy. You know, all sorts of fantastic things in Russian. So, for those of us who are kind of hooked on all of this, I really appreciate that. And thank you, Dara Goldstein, for just giving us a glimpse into this absolutely gorgeous book, Beyond the North Wind. It's wonderful, and thank you. Thank you, Jill. It was really fun to talk to you. Kenan X is a product of the Kenan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars in Washington, D.C. It's the Wilson Center's oldest program, founded in 1974 by George F. Kennan, American statesman, James Billington, historian and former librarian of Congress, and historian S. Frederick Starr. Inspired by them, the Kennan Institute's mission is to improve America's understanding of Russia and the wider region. Thanks for listening.